Sex is an important part of our life, and today we have an amazing guest to talk about it, Dr. Ian Kerner. His book, She Comes First, was sold more than 300,000 times. It's a New York Times bestseller for more than 10 years. It's also one of my personal favorites. I love talking to Dr. Ian Kerner and I hope you enjoy this interview too. Patterns of happiness are frameworks that always work. They are tools and practices that will bring permanent change to your life for better. We're not looking for temporary solutions. We change and transform. We practice what we preach and we're gonna share it with you here. Be careful because you can become seriously happier today. I have so many questions. I've been writing them yesterday and I hope we'll have enough time for them. And I'm a little bit anxious to be chaotic because I have questions from different areas because I was reading your book yesterday and I was kind of having different insights. Okay. <laughs> Regarding man in general, what is the main reason for premature ejaculation? From what we know, premature ejaculation is... Um... It's genetic or it's neurochemical, meaning that it's not really a, a learned behavior or a function of anxiety in the way that some other sexual dysfunctions can be. For example, it's quite common for young men to have um, psychological erectile disorder and have difficulty uh, gaining and maintaining erections. But if a young man in his uh, 20s or 30s or even older has early ejaculation, more than likely it's been chronic over his lifetime. He has always experienced it. Not to say that there isn't such a thing as psychological premature ejaculation or that anxiety doesn't play a role. And sometimes it certainly can be situational. For example, some men only experience premature ejaculation on the first date or the second date when they're having sex with somebody new. But for most of the men that I work with, including my own issues that I've had over the years with premature ejaculation, it's a uh, chronic issue, meaning that um, you're born with it. Um, it's probably a function of neurochemistry and the relationship between dopamine and serotonin. And some studies have shown that it's inheritable from uh, father to son or grandfather to father um, to son. And studies have looked at um, comparing men with premature ejaculation to men who don't have it and looking at what's the difference. Does a man with premature ejaculation masturbate differently? Does he have more uh, general anxiety or depression? Does he have more psychological issues? Um, the answer is no. There's no difference between... Uh, a man who has premature ejaculation and a man who doesn't in terms of what we would call the biopsychosocial context or all of the factors that could be part of the context. Hmm. In your book, one of the things you share is that uh, boys or guys who are used to watching porn, they, th this could be another issue because they're used to actually like acting too fast. I'm yeah. wondering... Whether you, in general, what, what's your general position about porn? Because it, in one of the chapters of the book, 
you actually share, you give some names of the more like feminine. So about my book, She Comes First, is that correct? Yes, yeah, about that one. So one thing to keep in mind is that book was published in 2004 and written in 2002 and edited in 2003. So it's been 15, almost 20 years since it was written. Uh, and things have changed, including me. So at that time, I was under the assumption that uh, a man's masturbatory pattern, the way in which he masturbated quickly with a lot of friction, often in privacy or secrecy, could lead to creating a pattern of premature ejaculation. Today, we know that that is not true. So if I ever revise the book, which I don't plan to do, to be honest, I would uh, correct that assumption because that's incorrect. Uh, a man's masturbatory pattern does not affect uh, premature ejaculation, although there are techniques where he can learn to uh, delay ejaculation through masturbation. Um, but masturbation doesn't cause premature ejaculation. So, Dimitri, you asked my my attitudes about porn or my thoughts about porn. What specifically is your question? Because more porn gets downloaded in a day than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. So it's a big field, a big area. So you have to ask me a uh, question. Okay, I'll try to be more specific. I'm just curious whether among your clients specifically, you see as it is a problem that basically spoils their attitude and relationship with their wives, for example, and whether it could be a problem. Well, so you have to remember, people come to see me because they have problems, not because life is perfect. So I only see people who have problems. And amongst the people who I see who have problems, porn can definitely be an issue. I just saw... Um, a guy today who has um, psychological erectile disorder and his girl and he always told his girlfriend, I have no desire. Rather than admit the problem, he said, I have no desire. I don't know what's going on. And she was about to break up with him. And he admitted, oh, but I do have desire. I watch porn every day, twice a day, and I can masturbate. And it's not that he doesn't have desire for her. It's just that he has so much anxiety around sex with her. So in that case, you know, porn can be an issue. In my experience, though, for more than 95% of people, porn is not a problem. They can enjoy it. It can be part of their life in the way that they like to masturbate and have orgasms for different reasons. And they can still have sex with their partners. So for most people, it's not an issue. For some people, though, it is an issue. If a, if a man is in um, a low-desire relationship, and part of the reason he has low desire is because he's masturbating frequently and doesn't have energy for his partner, then maybe the porn is a problem. Well, you described this couple in particular, and this guy, I remember it, my friend, a good one. Actually, it's a woman, and she has this problem with her husband. And uh, I thought, okay, you just spotted something. <laughs> and I, I, I hope it helps listening to our conversation. Maybe it will give her some idea. She spotted him several times watching porn, but he never accepts it. And he, she, he usually tells her that she's just too obsessed with sex. That's his answer. Men have a lot of, um, and women can have a lot of secrets around sex and a lot of shame around sex. and aren't always comfortable talking or know how to talk about sex. So 
it's 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 easy to make excuses and to sort of um, create lies uh, around our our sexuality. You just said that you're not planning to revise the book. No. Um, but are you gonna write something new? Uh, yeah, I do have a new book that I'm I'm working on. I I just um, sold the book, so I'm just starting to write it. So I don't want I don't want to talk about it too much yet because it won't be out for another two years. But I am writing a new book, and I'll, I'll be very proud of it. I, and I'm still proud of She Comes First. It's just you know when something works and it's successful, like I like to just leave it alone. Although there are a couple of things that maybe need to be updated a little bit. So who knows? I, I will share from my side. I, I haven't found it in Russian, but I found people who were actually making a certain little fund to pay the translator to translate the book for themselves. Are you sure it's not published in Russia? I thought it was in Russian. I haven't seen it in Russian. I read it in English, actually. Yeah, I think I saw the... I know there's a Polish edition... I thought that there was a Russian edition. I could be wrong. I don't keep track. Yeah, I haven't found it. Yeah, but okay. I just want to find you that there are hardcore fans that uh, actually just... <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I love your book because you have so many different little quotes I have never heard of. Uh, you make it like a poetry, really. It's fun to read. It's okay. easy. And it actually gets here. One of my favorite things that you shared is that um, the whole thing about the tongue and about cunnilingus mm -hmm. is that in the past it was considered as secondary, uh, something not really manly. And I would like to share with you that here they consider this thing to be unmanly. Because no, I can understand why um, uh, some men might have the assumption that it's unmasculine to go down on a woman. I, I think it's unmasculine... Uh, to not give a woman an orgasm and for her to not to experience pleasure. To me, uh, that's not manly. That's cowardly or selfish. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if every woman could have uh, orgasms from intercourse, but it's just not the way the female sexual anatomy is um, built. But um, I'm, I was surpri I'm surprised to hear. I mean, I, I mainly work with Americans, although I do work with many uh, Russians in America, and some uh, people from the Ukraine. And yes, it's interesting. I have noticed with some of the Russian men who I have treated that it is, um, if they are with um, sex workers or escorts, mm -hmm. they can do a lot of activities. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Low jobs and a lot of things. But often with their wives and romantic partners, it's very difficult um, to see their wives as sexual beings. But maybe that's just a stereotype. Well, that's an interesting thing. You, you share it in the book as well. You're saying that with a partner or with a wife, it's really difficult to share your dreams, like the ideas that you have in mind of what you would like to fulfill. And yes, there are some crazy ones, but for some reason, it really touches something, even in me. I mean, my, my, my wife, she practices Tantra and she's a teacher of Tantra. For me, even... In our environment that we have, for a long time, it was kind of hard to share with her what I feel. For some reason, I don't know, it's like something inherent, something inbuilt. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just blurt it out? Why can't I just say what I think or feel? Mm -hmm. So it took me some time to overcome. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem here too, which is that, um, I mean, I don't know in Russia, in, in America we have 
sort of two types of marriages. One is called like a, a traditional marriage going back in time where like the man goes to work and the woman's at home and um, he's the provider and uh, she's the homemaker and uh, sex is based on the man being the man and the woman being the woman and traditional ideas about gender. And then we also have egalitarian marriages, which is the kind of marriage I'm in and most of my friends and colleagues and patients are in where it's really a marriage of equals and both parties work and both parties share in childcare and collaboration and each partner has equal uh, authority and respect. And it's interesting, in traditional marriages, sex often works better because they can... Um, jump into the traditional gender roles of being a powerful male or a submissive woman <laughs> and bossing around. And actually it's, it's counterintuitive, but in, in traditional marriages based on traditional gender roles, often the sex works better. Not, it's a stereo, it's, I'm being general. In egalitarian relationships, like the relationship I'm in with my wife, is your relationship egalitarian, Dimitri? Yes, I would say so. If your marriage is like mine, I'm very nice to my wife. I'm very respectful. Um, can you hear me okay, by the way? Because the yeah, image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, so yes. I'm very nice. I'm very respectful. Uh, we talk very civilly to each other. So it can be hard to say, hey, now I want to throw you up against the wall and fuck you really hard. You know, like that's. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. That's a different language, right? It's a different language that has to do with like, I love this person, I respect this person, but I also want to throw her up against the wall and fuck her, you know? Like that's, um, there's a, a kind of a, a, a ruthlessness, a selfishness, an objectification in sex, which works very nicely with also being in a respectful, egalitarian, attached relationship. You just have to learn how to jump into that kind of language. Uh, when when it's the time and a lot of um, couples that I work with complain that sex is boring or they're not sharing their fantasies or they're not objectifying each other. It doesn't have that primal, carnal, raw, passionate energy. Interesting that it's really it sounds illogical, but I understand you fully. In, in this particular book, she comes first. You quote some. Taoist. I, I hope I pronounce it correctly in English. Mm -hmm. And also, you talk about uh, Tantra. I wanted to ask, uh, what's your experience with that and how much you actually practice it yourself, maybe, or you promote it among your uh, uh -huh. clients? You know, there's, um, there's sex that's procreative, right, where you're just trying to make a baby. There's sex that's relational. That's really about intimacy and emotional vulnerability and uh, connection and love making. Then there's recreational sex, which is about fun and creativity and novelty. And then maybe there's also a spiritual element in sex too, you know? I'm not so much in that spiritual zone as a person, as an individual. I, I, I'm open to it. But it's not where my wife and I, who I've been with for 20 years plus, occupy. And so what we occupy is more of a relational space around sex and a recreational space. So I call it sort of rec-relational sex, 
because um, it's really those two dimensions. What, what I do practice a lot of is um, mindfulness, of letting myself get unconscious during sex, of dropping down into arousal where I'm not thinking about my performance, I'm not thinking about my arousal, I'm not thinking about her orgasm, I'm just in the moment and I'm being and I'm totally present and I'm totally released from my thinking brain. And so I wouldn't say that that is um, spiritual, but it's a very different space that I can only occupy really during sex because I'm also with this person that I love and we're doing this together. And so it's not just like me like running for exercise or meditating. There's some kind of um, dance happening, but it's almost at an unconscious level. Mm -hmm. I get it. I understand what you're talking about, for sure. You've been working with sex issues for many years. Has your attitude to people in general changed? <laughs> my attitude? How would my attitude? I don't know what my attitude was or has it changed. I mean, you mean my ideas about sex or... I, well, can I say something weird? Can I share something weird? Yeah. I know that... Uh, People from sex industry, like escort and let's call them directly prostitutes, they actually have a very clear idea that they don't believe that people uh, can be faithful to their partners, for example, because they see men mostly being unfaithful, for example. Yeah. For example, so I'm just curious whether working with sex issues has brought some ideas or has yeah. changed you in this sense. I do work with a lot of couples around um, polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. And um, I, I appreciate how for everybody's different when it comes to sex and humans are very individual and very flexible. And so, um, you know, monogamy really can work um, for some people very well, especially if they have nice sexual chemistry and they keep communicating and expanding. Um, and some people um, really recognize that they are sort of like novelty seekers in sex and that they need um, some kind of new experience a lot of the time. And so I think it's nice that now couples can can meet and not just assume that it has to be monogamy, that they can negotiate and collaborate around non-monogamy. So I think in the end, Dimitri, people are, uh, you know, very different. And I see monogamy working every day, all the time. Not that to say there aren't issues and challenges. And I also see non-monogamy working. That's a, that's a great perspective in the sense that you see all kinds of people and you actually have this idea that everything can be different. That's cool. Yeah, there's no one size fits all. You can't even really study sex and make generalizations. I mean, you do and you do studies and research, but People are so different and so particular, it's really hard to generalize to any one person. And, and you know, I'm at the point where I'm in my writing where she is more advanced now than she comes first, where I've stopped writing like, oh, men are like this and women are like that and men like this for this reason and women like that. I, I think those kind of generalizations are bullshit. Question, maybe it's weird. You tell me if it's weird. I wanted to ask you, do families fall apart because... Uh... 
women don't have orgasms? Is it like a, a true possibility to marriages to fall apart? I mean, I think it depends on the marriage and the society, but are you asking me, do orgasms matter to women as much as they matter to men? Yes. Yeah, because if a man isn't having orgasms, if he's not uh, attracted to his partner or his partner isn't um, interested in his sexuality, he'll leave the relationship and he'll say, oh, we're not having sex or... I believe that orgasms are as important, feel as good to women. You know, when, 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 when babies are in the womb, there's no difference in their sexuality until 12 weeks, right? Sex isn't selected until week 12. And it could be a man, a boy, or a girl. But the tissue, the, 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 the material, the embryonic material is all there to create a boy or a girl. And it's not like if you're a boy, this material goes away. And if you're a girl, that material goes away. It just gets used in a different way. So everything that men can do in terms of feeling arousal and feeling orgasm and feeling uh, euphoric from orgasm, women experience too. And um, I've worked with plenty of women who are very dissatisfied in their relationships because they're not having orgasms. So then that means they're less interested in sex. And then that means that sex sort of disappears from the relationship. And usually that can be the end of the relationship. Maybe it's a myth. Maybe it's a stupid question as well. But I'm sincerely curious because I have some friends who are also women who say that sex is not really important for them. What I'm curious is... Is there a true possibility that physiologically they don't really need it? Or is it more a chance that they have never met someone who fits them? Their Stradivari, is, as they call in the book. Right. I mean, is it like the true difference in people? Like people can be different. For some people it's important and for some it's not. Or it can be physiological. Okay. So this is a little bit of a complicated answer. But in many cases, I said I don't like to generalize, so I'm, but I'm going to generalize. In many cases, men experience um, what's called spontaneous desire. So they walk down the street, they see somebody sexy, it comes into the eyes, it's wired into the penis, there's like a little jolt, like, uh, oh, if I wasn't married or if that girl was interested in me, I'd like to have sex with her. Guy is at home, wife comes out of the shower and she's changing. Wow, look at those breasts or look at that butt or look how cute she is. It's wired into the genitals and there's like a little feeling of spontaneous desire. And, you know, that's um, and we try and make something happen from that. Many women have a different experience of desire. It's not spontaneous in the same way. So woman sees husband coming out of the shower and changing and can think, oh, he looks sexy. He's cute. I love him. But it isn't necessarily wired into the genitals to create that desire. So sometimes for many women, for them to experience sexual desire, it's not going to be um, spontaneous like that. It's going to be more what we call responsive, meaning like, okay, like now my husband looks cute and sexy. Oh, now he's coming over to kiss me. Oh, I don't mind kissing him. Oh, 
that kiss feels nice. And, oh, let me smell his neck. Oh, that neck smells nice. Oh, the kids are asleep or the kids are at school and everything's nice in the house. Nobody's coming in. Oh, this feels warm. He's giving me a nice hug now. Oh, wow, I'm starting to feel some desire now. Let's get into bed. Yeah, I'd like to have an orgasm. That would be nice, you know, but it's sort of like you arrive at wanting to have sex because there's been this preconditions, this these nice things happening that lead up to that desire. But for many women, if those nice things, if they're in a world or a life or a relationship where like those nice things aren't happening over time to cultivate and build the arousal, then you don't get to desire. If you don't get to it, if it's not created, you don't miss it. You don't long for it, right? Like, um, if I don't if I don't create something, how can I really miss it? Like, if I was never born, I wouldn't know the life that I was missing. So for many women, if the, if the situation to create the desire isn't happening, they're not going to feel the desire, and they're not going to miss it because they're not experiencing it. That's truly a much longer journey for them. <laughs> now, some women do experience spontaneous desire, though. Um, especially in the beginning of a relationship or if they're single and dating and, and, and often in relationships. So I'm not saying that women don't experience um, spontaneous desire. And sometimes women will also be in a relationship and wonder, uh, you know, it's not that I want to have sex so much, but why is my guy not interested in sex? So it makes me interested that he's not interested and I feel like we're missing something not even that I necessarily want so much, but just to feel like it's part of the relationship. Thank you for your answer. Another question about female breast. Why are men really obsessed with female breast, including me? I'm just curious, is there any research giving answers to this? You know, I'm, I'm, I don't have a, a straight answer for that. I, I'm not an anthropologist. I mean, breasts, you know, on an unconscious level, take us back to a time when um, we were um, attached and supported and connected and at, at peace, powerless, yet safe. I mean, so I think that there's a lot of uh, warmth and comfort that comes from the idea in our culture, um, breasts are considered uh, sort of taboo, so they're often covered up. Anything that's covered up um, can be eroticized. Anything that's covered, you want to see underneath, right? It's so much sexier to see a person who's a little covered up than someone who's completely naked. Like I work with couples who all the time say, we go to bed completely naked where we lie in bed, cuddled together completely naked, but there's no sexual energy. I'd love it for her to wear some, if she would wear some sexy lingerie, you know? So inherently, um, we like a little bit of a secret, a little bit of a mystery. I remember the story from She Comes First about, I guess it was one of your clients who was saying, who is he, Conan Barbarian, tearing my La Perla bra or my oh, La yeah. Perla panties. Yeah. <laughs> I just imagined this guy immediately tearing her expensive lingerie. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Almost 18 years have passed 
since you have written the book. What has changed in the sense to how people treat sex in the uh, U.S. mostly? What yeah. do you see? Which tendencies do you see? Well, I think that um, the philosophy of She Comes First, I don't say that I invented it, but I think it's more prevalent, I hear today, that many men are focused more on wanting to make sure that their partners have pleasure and have orgasms. Cunnilingus seems uh, much more accepted as um, uh, an important uh, activity. Uh, men seem more comfortable, more skilled at understanding how to stimulate the clitoris. Women are still very often, I find, uncomfortable with cunnilingus. Maybe it could feel good, but uh, it's a very vulnerable act. It involves being seen and smelled and tasted in a very uh, intimate way. And so I have found that um, some women are comfortable giving oral sex, but uncomfortable receiving that kind of attention and pleasure. That has um, stayed the same. Couples are much more comfortable with um, sex toys today and vibrators and having fun with sex toys and uh, knowing about them. They're also much more comfortable with each partner watching porn or watching porn together as part of the, the fun. So those are some things that have changed. Actually, it sounds that everything changes for greater good. Yeah, I mean, we're still a very puritanical culture. We're still a very uh, shame-based culture. We're still a culture that uh, is there, very threatened by porn and masturbation. We still talk about sex addiction as though it's heroin or opium, you know, which is sort of ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. So things are getting better, but in some ways they're challenged. Also, people don't have as much time for sex anymore. There's so much content and social media and distractions and work. I mean, that's always been an issue, being too tired for sex. But I think the um, level of distraction that happens today through technology is, is different. People have way more distractions today as well. You know, I like when I go away with my wife and I just have a book in a hotel room and no real computer with me, like then we can really get down to basics. But at home, there's social media and the internet and Netflix and, and all of this stuff. What is your attitude or what is your general idea of how children have to be taught about sex? I have a little daughter. Sometimes she saw me naked and she's, she's just curious in the sense that, yeah, she sees something very different. I'm, I'm wondering whether you have any directions for parents and how the whole sexual education have to be presented to them? It's a good question. You know, every now and then I get an email from a mother or a father who says, I bought your book for my teenage son so that he'll know how to pleasure women. Or someone, a mother will say, oh, I bought this for my daughter because I want her to know what to expect and to be respected. So in this country, at least, sex education only focuses on not having sex, being abstinent, the, the, the biology of uh, human reproduction. There's very little focus on pleasure, how to give pleasure, create pleasure, communicate about pleasure. You know, we hear about how, oh, our kids are learning about sex from porn, and that's bad, but we're not trying to teach them in a positive way about sex. So where are they supposed to learn about sex anyway? 
they have no other choice, you know? So it's not that the porn is a bad education. It's just that there's no good education out there. And I would like more education around porn. I, I have uh, two sons who are 16 and 13. And I talk to them about how porn sex isn't like real sex and what I think some of the differences are. And uh, we talk in my house openly about friends who are gay or or trans. And I would say sex is treated um, just like every other topic, the way we would talk mm -hmm. about money or um, jobs or life. We talk about sex and um I think in this country, a lot of young men have um, erectile disorder that's psychological. And we love to blame it on porn and say, oh, these guys are watching too much porn and it's changed their brains. But that's not true. I'll tell you exactly why they have ED. It has nothing to do with porn. It has to do with growing up in a world where um, they were trained and talked to about doing so many things, like here's how to be a good student. Here's how to be a good friend. Here's um, how to make your bed and do your chores. Nobody ever talked to that kid about how to be sexual. And so then when that kid grows up and he's 17, 18, 19, and he's going to have his first sexual experience, it's like going to a swimming pool, walking up a diving board that's 50 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet high. You've never been on any diving board ever in your life, but all of a sudden you're on a 200-foot diving board. And of course you're going to be nervous. Of course you're going to panic. And that anxiety and nervousness and panic leads to erectile disorder. And now they failed the first time, and then they're going to fail the second time because now they're thinking about it. And so it's really the lack of communication, the lack of education. It seems like a lot of pressure also. Yeah. Can you advise some literature, maybe your favorite anthology uh, on um, sex, maybe something that uh, was published recently that you would do advice to read for yeah, me personally so, as well? I like um, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. I like Love Worth Making by Stephen Snyder. Tell Me What You Want by Justin Leemuller, which is all about fantasies. I like a book about fantasies called The Erotic Mind by Jack Marin. I like the work of Esther Perel, Mating in Captivity is a very nice book. Helen Fisher's books, Why We Love is great. Yeah, those are some books that I like. Thank you, thank you. I know that that's not something that you're practicing. That's something we discussed in the beginning, but maybe you read something from those Taoist teachers teacher that you could advise i think i spoke to it which is to use those practices to be mindful during sex so mm -hmm. mindfulness you know either as a way of distracting yourself from anxiety by getting very much in the present moment or really tuning into the own your own arousal that's happening in your body and your partners but i would use those practices um you know more meditatively as a as a form of mindfulness has this episode been valuable to you if so please rate us on itunes it helps us invite even more cool cool guests we're also always happy to hear from you you can contact us via instagram our page is happiness patterns 
DM us or just comment or subscribe, like us, follow us, whatever. Or send us an email, info at happinesspatterns.com. We have already recorded the next two episodes. We're gonna talk to Amanda Holmes, who is the CEO of Chat Holmes Foundation. Her story is truly unique. She's like Zorba Buddha. She lives in a community of meditators. She wakes up every morning at four o'clock and meditates and does her sadhana. And at the same time, she lives in the world and she manages one of the most successful sales training companies that she inherited from her father, Chad Holmes, who wrote the book the ultimate sales machine and help Tony Robbins to create business mastery training. And then we also talked to Deva Primal and Metana, who are the biggest, biggest mantra singers, chanters in the world. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I love those interviews, really. So you're gonna hear from us soon. We publish every Saturday. Bye bye.